With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. San Diego, a lot of it I learned was probably through the Tudor family. The influence that Joel had on on me started from his father, Joe, and it trickled down to Joel. And, you know, I have to say that Joe was someone who, who taught not only myself, but my brother and a lot of other friends. Joe had grown up, he was a local, born and raised in San Diego. And Joe taught us about San Diego surf culture, which actually has a lot in common with several other communities in California. Black wetsuits, white surfboards, style, um, respect. All of these things were super important. And sort of at the top of that hierarchy of surf cool, if you will, was Skip Fry. It was like, everywhere you go, if Skip Fry was out, like people just stopped. You, if you wanted to talk about style or think about your own style, you would look at Skip Fry, and that was sort of the foundation. Probably from that time on, I got to learn a lot from Joel, because Joel was blessed in the sense that Donald Takayama was a shaper, and Donald was friends with everybody. I mean, Nat Young, Skip Fry, Mickey Dora. You name any legend from the 60s, and Donald knew them, and he introduced Joel to them. And Joel would come back home and share all these stories about all these people he met. And I learned about surf history through Joel when I was like 14 years old. I already knew all of these things that the majority of the surf world had already sort of forgotten. I found it to be extremely intriguing. That was sort of the beginning right there for me on this path that I ended up following that was really dedicated to all forms of traditional surfing. And it all came from the longboard world. That was an excerpt from the film One California Day by Jason Botha, who actually himself was a former guest on this show, but it was the voice of Devin Howard. And I just figured it was kind of a better overview and introduction to Devin than anything that I could say here. However, I still owe him a proper introduction. And Devin is um, kind of an egg impresario. If that sounds funny, you'll fully understand what it means by the end of this episode. 
He's a writer. He's a professional surfer. He's worked as a marketing consultant in various aspects of the surf industry. And uh, more, more importantly, I think than anything is just, he's a surf history advocate. And I wanted to have him on the show and have this conversation, not really to detail Devin's history, but more so just to get his insight into a lot of the aspects of surfing that we discuss on this show. And Devin delivers. I had never met Devin before. We went surfing prior to this conversation, so we got to spend a tiny bit of time together. But um, the conversation started in a pretty funny place, actually. Devin had never listened to this podcast. And I'm not sure even how familiar with it he was. But to his credit, he brought his A-game and um, really, really engaged in the conversation. And we went long. I usually plan on an hour to an hour and a half at the most. We ran maybe uh, 20 to 30 minutes beyond that even. And you, the listener, always asks for more content, for longer conversations. So it is in that spirit that I give you this. Knowing that he had never listened to the podcast, I figured I would make a sales pitch for why podcasts are not only the fastest growing media platform, but why it is the most impactful and relevant and why we need it in surfing. So that is where this conversation begins. My name is, of course, David Scales. This is the Surf Splendor Network, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Wax On with Devin Howard. Everything that we discuss is available on surfsplendorpodcast.com photos, videos of Devin surfing. You can also find it on social media at Surf Splendor. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Devin Howard. I'll be back at the end to sign us off. Thanks. Like how can a wave possibly be? I started running and the concrete turned to sand. Started running when things didn't pan out as planned. Yeah, I I have not heard your podcast, so I'm sorry to say that, but I do listen to podcasts. Oh, you do. I okay. listen to the Daily. I think it's called. It's the New York Times. They're about twenty minutes long. Mm-hmm. They're a nice little hit of the news. It, it, I mean, it is a it's a liberal point of view. I don't I don't mind it. I, I'm not one or the other to be honest. I'm kind of probably down the middle. But um, I like the idea of podcasts. I, I've even kicked around the idea of doing one myself. But it's just one of those things where you have an idea and then you you don't actually do it. Sure. Um, and the reason I was interested in doing it was what you were describing was um, being able to have in-depth conversations and not having to edit out as much. And it feels a bit more real and they're enjoyable because you can play them in different situations. You could be cleaning the house. You Mm -hmm. could be doing chores. You could be driving somewhere and it doesn't require the visual attention that video does because videos on two fronts, you know, there's the visual and the audio, if there's music or someone's talking. Um, so I think it's cool you're doing this, so now I'm going to have to go listen to your other shows. I'll send you the A plus one so that you don't, so that you get a good impression, good first impression. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to go farther with it. I found, or actually, people have told me that without the visuals, it requires more of them as the as the consumer of it. So they actually engage more intimately with it 
because they're forced to use their imagination and envision the things that we're talking about. I think that there might actually also be an element of just the fact that like your earbuds are physically in your orifices, you know? And so there's an element of that involved. I was talking to Dave Parmenter, who I'm actually doing a regular show with quarterly now. And, um, yeah, he's a genius. Totally. So like, and he doesn't have, I've found he doesn't have enough platforms to like showcase his genius, you know? And so this has been a great thing for me and for him to be able to, um, unpack a lot of that. But anyway, I was talking to him. It wasn't on the air. It was on the phone. And he was like, surfers used to have the answers like back in the sixties and in the seventies, whether it was, um, social change or, um, environmental causes or whatever, like surfers actually had the answers. And nowadays the way that the culture has shifted and so much of it is run by big brands and advertising and it's everybody just writing high performance shortboards, trying to do the same exact maneuvers. There's less self-expression, all that like surfers don't. And they also don't have as uh, much of a voice anymore to even share their ideas And so as he and I talked, I was like, well, with the podcast, I have these conversations with Dave or with you and conversations spin off of that. I then get emails from listeners. Conversations take place on Instagram or we were just talking about Beach Grit. You see the comment section on Beach Grit actually has a lot better, more representative um, kind of snapshot of surf culture than anything I'm getting out of the magazines, than anything I'm getting out of video. It's the surf conversations that are take place in those forums that are more informative that I would argue with Dave do actually have the answers. There just isn't really a community for those things to exist. I mean, on beach grit there is, but it becomes just, uh, you know, shit talking in some ways, but in between the shit talking, there are some, really tasty morsels of info and insight. So I, I would agree with you on some levels. I think Stab is, you know, maybe started that. You know, they, they were known for that. But unfortunately, they just get too much into talking about each other's, you know, dicks and sex life and, you know, xenophobia. There's all these different kind of realms that you get into. But I've been reading the comments on Beach Grit, and I've found some of those people on there they're pretty damn witty and pretty smart and pretty funny and a lot of them are in the surf industry they're guys that you know that are using a pseudonym exactly yeah. and and it's given them a voice and so um you know beach grit it's becoming something i'm looking at more and more at first i was kind of like when things like kook slams um kook of the day and all those things came out in anything that was sort of um, spoofing or sort of having a go at at anything to do with surfing, I was initially like, "Aha, this is funny!" Like, and then I started, un- I kind of unfollowed them for a while because I felt that it just was getting too much negativity and mean spiritedness. And it's right. not that like I'm all about the safe space; I'm not that person. But I turned them off for a while, and um, but I've the one I've gravitated back toward was Beach Grit. I just think, I think there's some pretty witty writing on there and it it is sensationalistic type of writing and subjects sometimes, but it does get at the core of things and it is interesting because they're willing to go places that others won't. I don't know what they're relying on for advertising. I don't know their business model, but for some reason they're not as worried about just kind of laying it out there. Right. So it's kind of refreshing and fun. It really is. 
you know, we all go on our own personal journey of what what things do we like to read because the the media landscape has changed, as we all know. I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't know already. Um, but, you know, now where, where do I go to get information and um, sort of being a surf nerd? You know, I, obviously I love to surf a lot. Um, and I like to know what's going on, even yeah. though I primarily grew up riding longboards, mm-hmm. um, you know, labeled a longboarder. Um, I, I ride sort of mid-range boards. I wouldn't say I'm one of those ride everything people because I'm really not. I, pre- yeah. I pretty much ride longboards and eggs. I have some fish boards. I don't really ride them that much, but I really love them. Um, but I like to know what's going on. Right. Um, I really, you know, I look to surf line because it's easy. It's like, I hate to say it, but it's just almost like the McDonald's of surfing. You know, it's just like, you know, I normally wouldn't get a cup of coffee at McDonald's, but I'm on the road. It's easy. I get a cup of coffee. Sure. If I'm really hungry, I might get a breakfast sandwich, but I normally wouldn't because I don't really like what McDonald's stands for. <laughs> but but sometimes I'll do it. I don't care. I don't have a problem admitting it, you know. And it, and and it's like surf lines like that for me. It's yeah. like I, I'm not in love with it. I don't think that the journalism um, is amazing, but I think it's by design. So, and that's not. I'm not trying to insult anyone that works there, or you know, I, I know. Marcus, the editor, I, I know people that put a lot of energy into Surfline, um, but there's just not a lot of meat to it. It's just these like little quick, easy hits. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the fact that they have the surf reports and the cameras and everything dialed, I don't think I would even go there. Yeah. Um, I only look at their editorial content because I'm trying to figure out, well, where is the surf going to be next weekend or next week or what part of the world's going on? You know, at this stage of my life, it's not like I'm jumping on planes and going wherever I want, but I still like to just look and see what's happening out there. And sure. Surfline gets my eyeballs because of that reason. And that's why it's, you know, if you're a surf company or a business, it's it's going to be a good platform to communicate to a lot of people if you're trying to, you know, advertise. Right. Um, Surfline is the place. I think it's unfortunate that surfer and surfing kind of let them have it, you know, surfer and surfing years ago, if they had just been on it with the cameras and the forecasts, surfline wouldn't even be around in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I just don't even know if it would exist, but the fact that they didn't see that coming kind of like blockbuster didn't see Netflix coming. It's the same exact thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe who knows, maybe surfing would be around today. Um, Surfer, same thing. I mean, it's just this got this incredible um, legacy as far as a storytelling platform. But, and again, no offense to anybody there. I have friends that work there. I never go to their website. I just don't. Yeah. You know. Do you subscribe to their magazine? No. I don't subscribe to any magazines. Yeah. Um, I used, you know, I'm a bit of an insider. I used to get free subscriptions, so I'm lazy. My One of my dear friends is the editor of the Surfer's Journal. I'm too cheap to subscribe to it, <laughs> but I, and he but doesn't I, send you free copy. No, you know, they don't, they don't really do that. There, no. there isn't a, a comp program there. I give them shit for it all the time, yeah. but, um, you know, there's not a lot of print that I look at, you know, we're on our phones all the time. We're on yeah. a computer. And so the quick hits are Surfline and beach grit between yeah. those two, that kind of covers what I'm looking for. You know, if I'm looking for well, what's going on with the forecast and the waves, and I hate surf cameras with a passion, but they're there. So, yeah. of course, I'm going to look. Of course. <laughs> you know, yeah. trying to, you know, time 
your day. I, I, I have a, a regular job um, like everybody else does, and you're trying to find the windows that make sense for you to get in the water. Should it be in the morning? Should it be midday? Should it be the afternoon? And so it is a really good tool, but we pay the price for it. You know, the, the crowds change a lot. I can give you an example of surf cameras impact. I've seen it happen several times and I'm sure everyone can relate to this. So I regularly surf Cardiff Reef and Swamis and Lowers. Those are probably the three waves I go to the most throughout the year. And there was a time this last winter when the camera was down for three or four days and I go there with my fiance and we, you know, you, when you go somewhere regularly, you have a good sense of crowded, uncrowded, what's usual, unusual. And there was no coincidence whatsoever. The fact that the crowd was so minimal on those three to four days, I mean, it, it's a direct correlation because the camera at Swami's is this beautiful shot. It's up high. You're looking down on it. I mean, it just looks so tasty that if even on mediocre days, it makes Swami's look better than it actually is. Hmm. I know that people can relate. So there's times you see it on the camera and you go out like, man, it just not as good as it kind of looked on the camera conversely there's other camera spots where you'll look at the camera and say it's oh my god it's insane and you go out and wait it's not as good as it looks but so the camera thing is it's kind of like a double-edged sword i i look at it but i hate it hmm. you know because not that i do i have any ownership over, over anything no but as a surfer we we all know this we all admit it that we're very selfish um we like to share waves but not with 80 people yeah you know swamis with 20 people is pretty special and it's pretty manageable and everyone's getting waves and there's a nice rotation swamis with 80 people yeah i mean we know what that experience is like so i don't even know what i'm talking about but i'll I'll bring it back (laughs) um i i'll tell you what you actually teased a bunch of stuff that i do want to get really into but we'll get into it a little bit later Mm -hmm. i want to go back to what you were saying about beach grit that they seem to be willing to go places that other media isn't because they're not afraid as it seems. Well, you and I know, and listeners probably know as well, the way that the business model works is as any sort of a media company, you need advertising dollars. And so those advertising dollars start kind of dictating whether implicitly or explicitly what you say and the things that you talk about. Well, Derek uh, Riley, co-founder of Beach Grit, used to, he founded Stab Magazine. Mm-hmm. And so a famous story there, which I'm only mentioning because I don't know if listeners are fully aware of this, was Chaz was a writer at Stab. And Chaz wrote an article about Mick Fanning using a derogatory term towards Chaz at a party after he won the uh, world title the first time on the, US, on the North Shore. And so Chaz wrote the story, published it, and Rip Curl, who is Mick Fanning's sponsor contacted Derek and they were like, Hey, you got to print a retraction or or pull this article, pull this magazine off the shelf. Otherwise we're going to pull our advertising dollars out of stab. And they were, and they were advertising to the tune of a quarter of a million dollars a year. And Derek basically made a business decision and was like, no, I'm not going to do it. That it's a true story that Chaz wrote about. And so I'm standing behind my writer. I don't remember. I think rip curl actually did pull advertising, but the surf community at large found out that story and just said, well, I'm forever going to subscribe to stab magazine now because they're willing to tell the truth essentially. And I think Derek did fine with his business. And now he and Chaz obviously have a tight 
relationship and now a partnership with Beach Grit because it was forged through something like that. So to answer your question, Beach Beach Grit's business model, they have brought on advertising after a couple of years of not having it and like just building a loyal fan base. They now have banner ads on the website for Lost and I've seen Sharp Eye and some other stuff. And, um, which I, I don't know if they originally intended to do that or what, but they've slowly, you just adapt and you evolve as you go and you do what you got to do to pay the bills. And so I'm sure yeah. things that they said they would never do in the future, they will ultimately end up doing. And Chaz has joked about it, but, um, it well, is what it is. It's know? not a volunteer organization. No. And so they built an audience of what would you would think are real surfers because if you're just a, a novice or just a passerby, you're not even going to know about Beach Grit. So right. it it makes sense. It's a core audience. Um, if it's not excessive and you know they're selecting brands that that audience would probably wouldn't mind, right. I, I, it, I don't think it's getting in the way from what I've seen. It isn't. It, and it's, it's cool that the brands um, are not afraid of the content that's on there. And I think they're aware that if you are if you are on Beach Grit, you probably are a, you know, quote unquote core user. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it makes sense. And I think the brand should know the only value Beach Grit has is letting Chaz and Derek be Chaz and Derek. So once we start to kind of tamp that down our advertising dollar goes doesn't go as far because listeners or readers in that case you know are getting a watered down version of Derek and Chaz so yeah. let them let them go wild i think it's refreshing to have honest viewpoints um you know i i think you do get that in the surfer's journal um it's definitely not a small bites experience the surfer's journal is more of a i'm spending the afternoon i'm going to leisurely read this and yeah. enjoy it um some in-depth reading um, but I think, you know, I was in the surf media for a while in, when was that 90, I got to remember the years here. I think I was at Longboard Magazine from 90, the beginning of 99 to the end of 2003 or something like that. And, um, you know, during that time, a lot of the magazines would kind of mask what sort of the reality of things. Exactly. And I don't even, in my experience, it, at least in the longboard world, it wasn't that any brand was ever going to flex or make a writer or an editor make those calls. I just think there was this idea that if you were super brutally honest about these surfers, you would probably get your ass kicked. Right. I mean, that that's just for real. Mm. Like, you write a real article and you show up on the North Shore, <laughs> you know, you, you're going to get punched out. And yeah. there's, um, there are some writers that, were pretty honest, like let's say like a Brad Malekian who worked for me at Longboard and he went on to Surfer and he started getting into the Andy Irons uh, story and I I think he was writing a book. I don't really know what happened with it, if he's still doing the book or not. I was going to ask you for that update. You don't yeah, know? I'm not sure. I th- and he got a lot of threats um, about working on this piece and, and kind of taking the raw truth approach mm. and... Um, you know, there's a real story there with Andy Irons, and it's it's slowly gotten out, and it's taken a while for people to be honest. But those first few years, it was kind of like, shh, don't talk about this. You know, right. Billabong had kind of a nice little facade around that that whole story, which is it's quite sad, you know. Right. And but for Brad, 
he is kind of a low-key guy. Like, you would walk by him on the street, and you wouldn't know it was him. So I think he was able to get away with it. If there are other more high-profile writers that get in front of the camera, and you kind of know what they look like, yeah. they they know they have to be, or at least used to, be careful about what they say. Right. Um, so therefore, you got this sort of, like, wholesome, leave-it-to-beaver type of articles that they were the same. They were very formulaic. It was all about you know, how they started surfing and how they love it. It's just so boring, right? you know? And so, um, in, luckily in today's world, we have some choices. There's still some boring journalism happening. I mean, that's definitely still out there. Um, but I think through the journal and, and beach grit and honestly, just Instagram and social media, there's, there's just so much out there now. I don't even know how some of these publications even exist yeah. anymore. Like, you don't really need to go to them anymore. Well, Longboard went out of business, right? Yes, Longboard went out of business because of some some just the business model wasn't good. Um, the the owner owed money to like nine different publishers and was just barely getting away with it for years. And you know, the problem was is they were printing. It was this high quality publication. And the advertising coming in was just rinky-dink money. It was really just surfboard builders. There was no large, none of the big brands were there. You never saw Quicksilver, Bill Bomb because they just couldn't relate to it. It didn't match up with their business model, which was to align with youthful, anti-establishment um, type of customers. And Longboard had an identity crisis. The, the, the publisher... Um, his name is Guy Motiel. He's a legendary photographer from the 80s. Um, his viewpoint, unfortunately, was just sort of not in tune with what was actually cool. I, you know, at the time, the whole Joel Tudor movement, single fin surfing, the seedling had come out. There was this sort of shift. And there was a moment there where I think Longboard, if, if Guy Motiel hadn't gotten in the way of it, hmm. would still be around today. Interesting. And... Instead, the perception was more of like old guys, balsa wood, you know, lame Hawaiian print shirts. And, which, what are you and wearing I'm, right and now, I'm, dude? And I'm, and I'm wearing one. Well, this is a cool one. <laughs> oh, you said lame Hawaiian, not just yeah, regular lame. Hawaiian print. Got no. It, got it, got it. The oversized baggy ones. This is um, That one's fitted. This is fitted. Uh, <laughs> you, could, you, got, you could flex your muscle yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it makes show. my muscles look bigger than That's they actually true. are. Um, I think I'm losing muscle at this point in my life. But, um, you know, it, it's unfortunate because we were there. I worked there, and I, I was connected to that world. Um, but I couldn't get the editor-in-chief slash publisher to sign off on, hey, let's make this thing cool. You know, like we had opportunities yeah. for Thomas Campbell to come in and art direct a piece and things like that, and he just wouldn't have it. And mm. so... Um, you know, we got away with a couple cool articles uh, here and there, but but by and large, um, we were a bit beholden to his vision, and and unfortunately, it just was a bit whack, and and it, and it lost momentum and it went down. So it's funny, um, you said you've never listened to this podcast. I've never actually read Longboard Magazine, so there you go. But uh, not missing much. Okay, no. <laughs> no, there there's some good there there are good articles in there. Scott Hewlett, well, yeah, founded it. There's it's, there's really well-written pieces, and mm. I think there's a there's a connection to the journal in a way. Um, mm. The art direction was pretty bad. 
And yeah. I think that's kind of what really held it back. But what, if you could get past the art direction, the writing was solid. Well, so my question for you, though, is like, I feel like longboarding, maybe there's a kind of broader category than just that, but let's just say longboarding, has been kind of marginalized by mainstream surf media, certainly since the thruster movement. You know, like, and the aforementioned Joel Tudor complains about it on Instagram, that surfing magazine never supported it and whatever. But then it's interesting that the one magazine that comes along that's actually named longboarding still has an identity crisis and doesn't actively or or accurately anyway reflect the movement and the community and all that sort of thing. I had never thought about it in those terms. And I mentioned I've never read the magazine to say that I didn't actually know that until now. You know, when I saw the magazine on the shelf, I was writing a lot of shortboards and I was young, so I never actually even tried to engage with it. But it's interesting that the whole identity has been mismanaged by those who tried to identify it. Yeah. And, but the cool thing is, is yeah, and that was a missed opportunity, but now it's just sort of everywhere. You know, I was just looking on Surfline's Instagram feed, and you're starting to see a, a pattern of every five to seven posts that they do is a really beautiful longboard image. Mm. And I, someone there has figured it out, and they're getting incredible response on it. And yeah. granted, a lot of the people that follow Surfline are not even surfers. Yeah. There's something that's relatable about longboard surfing when you see it, and um, there's something sort of beautiful about it. Yeah. And um, so, the thing about longboard surfing across sort of like the surf world, it still has a stigma as being just sort of lame. You know, um, it's almost like the pendulum went too far. You know, there was the hipster vibes. I don't know, five six years ago, and you know, if you look at the comments that were out there in the world, I mean, there was a lot of people that just weren't that into it. But I think now I just don't, I don't feel there's a need for a longboard publication anyhow. Oh, okay. Um, I just really don't. I mean, yeah. because in the social media world, there's so much of it out there now. Right. Um, everybody's sort of sharing it. Mm-hmm. And you see things pop up, you know, the Surfer's Journal um, and Surfer have just done pieces on C.J. Nelson and Justin Quintal. Um, you know, Joel Tudor pops in there every couple of years. Sure. Um, Ryan Birch has become quite a sensation and is someone who rips on pretty much any type of board. Yeah. And so I just, I just don't think there's a need for it anymore. You know, and I think people understand that a longboard has a time and a place. I think, by and large, people are pretty well educated on that front. That doesn't mean everyone's going to ride one. I mean, there's still a lot of people who are like, you know what? I, I would rather just ride like that fish over there um, because I can still paddle. But I just, you know, I want a, a tighter turning radius. Yeah. I don't want to just go straight. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the future of longboard surfing is it's just part of sort of everyday surfing. And in the media world, it's just going to pop up when it's appropriate. A beautiful image is a beautiful image. Yeah. And, you know, you have guys like Harrison Roach who... Any longboard photo you see of him is awesome. I don't. I, it doesn't really matter what your background is. You can respect it. Yeah. And then you'll also see him pulling into you know ten foot neos, mm-hmm. getting just pitted out of his mind. I think we're just the whole discussion about longboard and shortboard and movement and see it's just so old news. I, don't, I maybe I'm just kind of naive here, but I 
I just don't think it really matters anymore. I'm just not sure how much it does because, um, and you tell me, like, what do you see it as? I, I don't know. Um, it's funny. I come from such a shortboard high performance background. It took somebody kind of hitting me in the head repeatedly to open my eyes and realize that that's such a small aspect of surfing. And doing this podcast for the last four years, the most engaged listeners that I have are riding everything. They're not just longboarders, but it's like the guys who are in the water with us this morning or friends. And it's like, they know everything about everything. They have tremendous reverence for surf history. They know tons about board design, not just longboards, but all this stuff. And it made me realize like, whoa, I kind of got to step up my game and my awareness and start writing different things because, um, you know, I am the one who's kind of conducting these conversations. And if I can't even pre- present an elevated conversation to the listenership, if the listenership's more knowledgeable than I am, then I need to get my act together. So um, I get almost no engagement from that high performance shortboard only community. Um, so I'm interested, though, you're talking about it seems like everything that you're absorbing from surfing is coming from social media now, the way that you talk about it. You're not necessarily reading the magazines. And is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I um, It's probably just, um, you know, just general laziness that most of us are going through. Um, Do you think it is or is that actually the most uh you know well, intense like we're seeing the best surfing takes place on instagram and it happened earlier today yeah well i mean it's real simple i don't think i could really offer any insight that any other observant person would but it's simple to me i'm 43 years old i started surfing when i was seven so the only media i got was surfer magazine because my mother subscribed to it so surfer magazine has been in my life since before i even can remember so i looked forward to it each month and that in between that time there was nothing else that i was exposed to unless a surf film came to town right which was kind of rare um you would go to the video rental store and there was probably two or three videos there was endless summer blazing boards and adventures in paradise or something there just wasn't a lot out there so you used to look forward to things um now it's kind of like what's the point like by the time (laughs) by the time surfer magazine gets in front of me there's really not much in there that i haven't been exposed to yeah unless they've done a really good job of doing some sort of incredible travel piece or a human interest story, and there was no leaking of any of the stuff before, then it's like, wow, I'm kind of looking forward to this. Um, I do get Surfer Magazine. I get the digital subscribe. I did subscribe to it digitally. I don't okay. get the print. So I do flip through it. Um, the only one I spend time with is the journal. Yeah. You know? And I, I actually, I'll usually go buy it at the Patagonia store down the street because I get a little discount. So I don't <laughs> want to pay the, the full price. Um, but, every, you know, I, I'm... I do I, I do buy the Surfer's Journal. Okay. Um, I should subscribe to it, but I haven't. And then, so my point where I'm going with it is I follow, I don't know, 900-something people. Now, I'm not on there all day, but the times when I do go on it, I flip through it. It's like, it's almost too much. There's just yeah. so much surf content that it's nauseating. It is. And it's really, I'm bored. So what am I looking forward to? It's just like... 
the journal at least kind of sits on things and gets interesting pieces. And I think Scott Hewlett's t- taste level is very high, and, and he, there's a lot of scrutiny through his sort of approach of, hey, we're going to try to just put out something special. And he'll tell you this directly. It's gotten very difficult for him to do that. It's very hard for him to uncover something that hasn't been done already because yeah. everything's pretty much been covered. Yeah. So, you know, once you've kind of been saturated throughout the different times you're on the phone, then maybe you're waiting in line somewhere and you're bored because we don't look at each other and talk to any, we don't talk to one another anymore. We just look at our phones. Um, by the time the day is over, I just don't really have a stomach to see anything else. So therefore I'm not like, there's no like urge to go and pick up a magazine and look at it. Let me, so I'm open to the idea that we're lazy and that's why we're just getting whatever is our phone is providing for us in the shortest kind of smallest morsel. But I, I actually don't think that's what it is so much, or maybe a percentage of it is that I think it's that the strength of print and even film is that they have the time and the space to really develop story. And I think that our storytellers have failed us. So Surfer's Journal aside, let's just talk about everybody else. I feel like the reason why I'm not engaged with surf film anymore, like we were when we were children, or the magazines like we were when we were kids, was the storytellers aren't doing a very effective job at their job. And my time is divided up between um, so many amazing television shows that are available now on Netflix that are unbelievably well developed and produced and all that stuff so i would like for our filmmakers to pay you know to do that level of filmmaking and then it would have my attention i want to give them my attention i love the medium i'm dying for it i just don't know i can't think of a lot of surf films that have come out in recent years that really have captivated me i actually did write down a couple um like let's be frank last year i don't know if you saw that or not yeah it's good it's good and it's like it does a great job at developing story and a character frank and a, a lot of it was fictionalized but it's a great story whether it's true or not and to be honest the surfing was substandard in the film and i still loved the film i think dane reynolds chapter 11 was another example where it was like phenomenal story super interesting character and then, of course, amazing surfing, and it captivated all of us. All of us watched that, mm-hmm. whether you longboard or, or shortboard. You Absolutely. know, so I think those are successful examples, but I can't think of a lot of others. You know, no, I, I mean, I've heard rumblings that Thomas Campbell's working on something, and you know, he's got an, a whole brand, um, and so I, I think for him, it'll work. If, yeah, if you already kind of, if you do like his vibe. Um, I think he'll have another strong following. I know that they just did a trip to Indonesia with Ryan Birch and Craig Anderson and a whole list of shredders. Um, and I, word is they got really good waves. Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty excited. Uh, Ryan Birch was, you know, I'm a fanboy of Ryan Birch. Are you? Uh, yeah, I really like I like his whole program. He's a good kid too, and really really talented. Um, in the surf film world, again, it's the same thing. It's just how do you make a surf film without the sessions getting leaked? And so by the time they sort of get to the screen, um, what are you holding? Well, my argument is their value is no longer the clip. Their value is they have a platform to tell story that Instagram doesn't. 
So that's what they need to focus on. I agree. Yeah, yeah because if it really just boils down to typical surf porn, there's nothing new going on there. And, no. and you're going to get minimal uh, amount of people to really care that much about it. I know Fish People just came out that Chris Malloy, or not, I'm sorry, Keith Malloy just did Fish People. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it. I um, had Keith on the podcast. Yeah. We talked and, about it. And I liked it. And I, you know, I think Keith is doing maybe more along the lines of what you're suggesting is, you know, something yeah. a bit more there. And I learned about some people that I didn't know about. Agreed. And that's hard to do in this day and age. And that's what I told Keith. I was like, you know, good on you, man. There totally. was a couple characters in there that I had never heard of. And yeah. that was pretty cool, you yeah. know. The the lady that swam the channel, um, I, I didn't know anything about her. And that was awesome. Yeah. You know, the the young Tahitian kid, yeah, I recognized his name. But I, I didn't really know a lot about him. And from a core standpoint, there was something kind of nice about it. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, what for the filmmakers out there that want to do something um, sort of unique, yeah, they're going to have to challenge themselves to dig deep on a story and find a way to share something with us that we haven't seen or we haven't heard about. That's no easy task. It, You know what? I would say good news is surfing provides the most interesting characters out there. Like these are nomadic people who don't really make a lot of money for doing what they're doing, who are incredible athletes, who have an – an uh kind of artistic and creative aspect to them because surfing is you know and so i think that there's a lot of stories i think there's a lot of really interesting people i mean and i always criticize the wsl for not excavating those stories it's like how much or little do you know about joel parkinson i don't know anything about him really you know what i mean and that's a failure of the wsl just so, the same boring interviews that they do between every heat. That's yeah, all I know. Yeah, at yeah. night it was, you know, it was hot out there. And, yeah. You know. And they, they, <laughs> that's all you get. To their credit, they've just started doing profile pieces, and, and they're well done, and I've really enjoyed them. But I do think that, again, if you're a filmmaker, now's a really ripe time. And, of course, equipment's cheap, and you can self-publish for free and just tell story. And I think yeah. that is – Well, they have – Chris Morrow, who is a former Surfer Magazine editor, he's over there. Yeah. He's one of the lead folks on sort of the content. So I'd imagine you're going to start seeing more and more of that type of, type of um, you know, in, in-depth profile pieces. Yeah. Which is a magazine approach. Mm-hmm. So It is. And it's also, though, the NFL has been doing it for a long time. You know, like there's all these other sports franchises that have networks dedicated towards this type of stuff. Right. documentary pieces and news shows and all that sort of stuff. Um, so as I, I, I mean, a lot of the reason why I wanted to have um, you on the show is to talk about the ever evolving media landscape in surf. And I'm curious, where do you think advertisers surf brands get the best ROI for, for their dollar nowadays? Is it in print? Is it on banner ads on the web? Is it on Instagram? Like, um, Even if they're getting a ton of exposure on Instagram, does anybody click on the ad well, and buy I'm, a product? You know, like, I'm a marketing consultant, so I don't know if I should offer this information for free. Come on, buddy. Uh, for the listeners. <laughs> for the listeners. No, I think it's pretty easy. Um, everybody knows it's Surfline. That's where most of the eyeballs are. And then um, in concert with that would be Instagram. You know, I don't know what, what the future is. You know, I'm... I thought there would be something kind of already grabbing our attention more than Instagram by now, just at the the pace that Instagram 
um, had sort of popped up, yeah. taken over. I'm like, okay, well, what's next? We should kind of be looking forward of what's going to take that over. Is it, you know, for a while there, was it, was it going to be Vine? Was it going to be Snapchat? Um, but I, I think it's Surfline and, and Instagram. And I think the other thing, too, is um, I look at a brand like Yeti, um, came out of nowhere. Um, and this might be boring subject for people listening to this, but if you're into sort of the marketing world and how to make a brand, have a look at Yeti's story and how they made you care about a cooler <laughs> so much that you would pay $500 for it. It's, it's insane. It is insane. And there's, they are a case study for marketing. And a big part of their success is creating content and they've reached out to people like Chris Malloy and other filmmakers and have gone out and found these really interesting people that do crazy backcountry hunting and camping and um, they're pretty inspirational type folks and it's done so well um, and they figured out a way to take the, the branding and put it together with this incredible stories on people so it becomes this like you know entertainment that's it's it's branded entertainment and And they're selling a lifestyle yeah and you don't feel like you're watching a commercial you really are but there's not over the top product placement you know a couple times you might see a cooler coming in out but they're not like zooming in on the features and the logo it never feels um out of place and what they've done as well is they've made sure that you and I find this content. So even if you don't go on Yeti's site or really follow them in any way, they spend a lot of money on distributing display ads that pop up out of nowhere about a cool new story. And it's click on here to learn about, you know, the guy that survived the backcountry for seven days or whatever. Or they did a Shane Dorian one too. Yeah, which Chris Malloy yeah. did. The, that was the story about father and son yep. adventures, and it was amazing. I mean, it was, you know, full kind of tearjerker. Like totally. any, even if you're not a father, you could relate to those stories. And um, so you're going to see companies like um, that follow the Yeti model where they're not necessarily going to rely on Surfline or Instagram, they're going to find you through really cool stories, you know, and that's yeah. what that that's been happening with a lot of brands, but they've done it the best. It's a great example, actually, because I've actually found myself on Yeti's website looking at coolers and pricing, trying to justify how to make that purchase because <laughs> I'm like, I don't even need a cooler. I don't do anything in my life where I need a cooler, and if I do need one, like to go to the Hollywood Bowl. I don't need the Yeti. I, an igloo will work fine, but maybe I'll get into hunting one day. And if I get into hunting, maybe if I buy this cooler, then I'll get into hunting like that. You need because, ice for 10 days, then, yeah. you need, then you need a Yeti. But that's how effective Yeti did their job was I don't need a cooler and I'm trying to buy the most expensive one on the market by 10 It's not even just yeah. double the, the price. The average cooler is about 40 to $50 and right. they're pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And the Yeti's... <laughs> Literally 10 times that. I think they have an $800 one. It's so crazy, dude. <laughs> Do you own any Yeti gear? I just got a free one. Uh, I got the small... Um, That's why you're the talking little soft, about them right The little now. soft shell one. Um, I didn't even get it through them it was given to a friend who said hey do you want this i said yes i do <laughs> now is it 10 times better for 10 times the price 
Mm, I, I haven't tested it yet. I got to put it under a tire and drive over it like right. they do in the commercial, and then I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that is a, the best example of somebody who's accurate or like really effectively integrating story into marketing and then infusing it into the marketplace without you and I even knowing that it's marketing, you know? Yeah, because, you know, if you, again, if you go back to what sort of commentary you see out there, um, you know, it's not like people want to be advertised or not no. like super psyched on it. So, um, if you can make it a little less painful yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and get some engagement, and if there's something I can get out of it, um, and then you connect the dots to the brand, it's kind of a win for everybody, Yeah, I think. So best practices, follow those guys. And if, you know, if you want some free marketing advice and I'm get I get nothing from Surfline, um, I have nothing to do with them, but that, that is when I was at spy, um, when I was leading the marketing team at spy, um, that was where our best spend was, was mm. at Surfline. And that was, you know, I left there in 2014. Yeah. Interesting. Um, kind of a, I don't know, incidental little tangent, but talking about surf film, you've been obviously in a number of surf films. I think one California day might've been the first time I encountered your name even. Um, and I love that film and I've had Jason on the podcast too, when he released Bella Vita. So, um, yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've been lucky to be involved with a lot of filmmakers and it really, it helped me with wh- where I'm at today. Sure. Uh, I'm a marketing consultant. I have a small collective, which is really the same thing as an agency. Um, the cool thing about our business model is we don't have an office and the reason is it's scalable. Yeah. So if we work from home, we don't have to worry about the overhead of thousands of dollars a month. When you hire agencies, um, you really want the work. You really don't want to pay for their cool office and their bubbly water. Right. Um, so the skills I learned were through magazine making, um, where you learn how to build an editorial calendar. You learn how to develop pagination and pacing. So you look at an issue and say, well, we've got a profile and a travel story and uh, product overview and you know you you don't want to kind of double up on things so you look at that and that that sort of helps you think about how to tell a story for brands that was like a logical progression and the filmmaking piece of it being around guys like jason and mark jeremias who helped them make they made the film together um and and mark even more so than than jason has a, a real organized business approach and and jason is a real thinker and he's a real creator so that that team of those guys together was pretty awesome. You don't see that a lot. Um, you know. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInJobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInJobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I learned a lot from watching those guys. I learned a lot from watching Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell, what I got from him was that don't do things the same way as everybody else. And so I have a sort of a mantra and some of the people that have worked with me would vomit if they heard me say this, but it's the, you know, beware of the usual. That is when you're going into any type of project, do not do it the same way that everyone else does. That's, that's weak and it's boring and really no one's going to care. Um, you'll see a lot of creatives out there look around them and just sort of borrow and kind of, kind of, do what everyone else does because they think that's the way to, to sort of win, if you will, um, in the business, in the marketplace. Yeah. And so Thomas, I remember one time he, he said, I, I, was comp- I was complaining. I was being a little bit of a bitch, and I was complaining about how the surf sucked. And I was there shooting photographs. It's something else I did. Um, I, I followed Thomas around for a little bit on Sprout shooting photos. Um, I got the invite from him, which I'm really thankful for. And I was kind of whining about the conditions. And he just looked at me and he said, dude, everything is shootable. He's like, change your shutter speed. Take a different angle. Like, just make it happen. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, I'm such an idiot. You know, like I just, I, I was just so like the light has to be perfect and all these sort of things have to fall into place. And it's such an easy tip. But that had a huge impact on the rest of my life about looking at any situation is doable. This interview we're doing, there's an airplane flying over right now. There's a train going on in the background. The wind's blowing and the shutters are going to make noise, but we're going to talk through it because we're just going to kind of get around it. We're not going to freak out and say, oh my God, the interview's over. Right. You might want to hit pause, but I think we can keep talking through it. And so the... Sort of being exposed to these really talented people, I've benefited from immensely. Um, J- Jason and Mark had had a different storytelling. Um, you know, Thomas is very visual and, and audio. Like his music choice with the with with the visuals is insane and, and quite unique. Um, and brought he was the first person to actually make longboarding look cool. Mm. And I and I was like, wow, you know. And and I met him through Joel Tudor. And when I saw the first film that Joel and Thomas had done together, just the test rolls, and it was it really the seedling started out as a project, little known fact. It was a Takayama branding project. 
that became a film. It really was a, really was about Joel Tudor initially, and and it just sort of like Thomas started meeting other people through Joel, other really interesting single fin surfers, and then it was like, okay, well this is this could be be much bigger than just Joel. Yeah, Joel's sort of the sharp point of it, um, sort of the instigator of it all. But there's some other people doing some really cool surfing too, as you saw in the film, and yeah. and whether you like longboarding or not, you're going to find a few people that are going to say, man, the seedling sucked. Mm. It was lame. Right. Like, totally. There's something wrong with you if you think that movie sucks. Now, you could go back and say, well, it's a little long. Well, back then, there was no internet. You you know, long surf films made sense. You know, a, a, a 60 to 90 minute film, you could stomach it. Um, do you today think, you can't. <laughs> do you think that feature length surf films still have any relevance at all to our culture? I, I think they do. do? You know, it goes back to some things we talked about earlier, which is um, what unique story can you tell? I, I think if you're going straight surf porn, you're going to be hard pressed to go past 30 minutes. Um, I think that's kind of the limit. And even people like Chris Malloy and Keith Malloy, who did Fish People. And then they did the Fisherman's Son. You know, they kind of stopped at 30 minutes. And to be honest, I wasn't craving more. I thought it was perfect. Yeah. We just don't... I we really can't stomach a 60-minute film anymore. It's just really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think they do have a place. I just don't know that film tours of 30-minute films are you know really the thing. But right. maybe two or three shorts, that, I could see that being a thing. If I could go to a little mini fest and get like a 90 minute experience but maybe there was two or three things yeah, happening I, I think that would be pretty cool and I, I don't know if anyone's kind of figured that out yet but well, i didn't mention this to keith but i wondered if he should have taken fish people and made it six different um episodes vignettes. yeah kind of the netflix model or hbo yeah where you, you you're getting sort of episodes and well those podcast almost 20 minutes and that story there was no tying of those stories together other than they were all fish people. It wasn't like there was interstitial like narrative that tied the stories. So I thought they actually might've almost better existed as vignettes. Um, and they, they, I would think they'd get more eyeballs because then it can live on YouTube as a series and whatever, but I'm obviously, yeah, you know, the future of the feature film is it's going to be competitive and difficult. And yeah, you know, I know Red Bulls made films, Monsters made films, and they show them for free at La Paloma. And I've gone, and it, there's 80 people in the audience. Yeah. So I, I think we got a little off course a few years ago. Um, there are very few filmmakers that have figured out to make us sort of care to show up. Um, and Forbidden Trim, which George Trim did recently, I was looking forward to it. You know, it, they did a good job. Surfer Magazine did an article. I, I kind of knew George through Joel Tudor. I figured he was going to do something interesting. And I had heard that they had these little miniature models and they went and kind of created an experience. And so it was a fun thing to go to. People were into it. And whether it, was it the greatest surf film ever made? No, it wasn't. But it was an experience and it was mm -hmm. something different and unique. So if we get more of those, I think the feature length surf film has legs. Yeah. Otherwise, you better be Dane Reynolds or you better be someone that's just freaking mind-blowing. And that's about the only other way you're going to draw people. And, you know, and you see Dane's figured it out. He's not touring surf movies. He's 
putting them on the internet. And, With and zero it, advertising in advance. It just shows up one day. Yeah. And, and everybody stops and watches. And there's merit to it. So yeah. I think you'll see more people go that route versus yeah. you know putting in the time and energy into a film tour. You know, Chris Burkhardt just did Under an Arctic Sky. And, I mean... That is a robust tour. Now, Chris is, he's a celebrity. He's an Instagram celebrity with a couple million followers. And so he's kind of in a unique position because there's so many people that love his photography. That guy was crushing the tour. Like, if I, I know Chris. He's a friend. And I follow him on Instagram. And you see the tour. There's, he's filling up the theaters in crazy places across the country. Not many people are going to be able to do that. No. And, you know, it. It was a, in some ways, a typical surf film, but it really wasn't. There was more to it. There was, there was a goal in mind. There was a challenge. They didn't quite achieve it, but the story is about the journey along the way and on the back end, and it was an enjoyable experience. So again, if you're just going to do surf porn, probably yeah. not the way to go. Find find ways um, to get us to care to go. What surfers are you most excited to watch? When you see something either pop up in your Instagram feed or a video online, like what will you stop everything to pay attention to? The number one surfer I'm most excited about is Ryan Birch. Partly because the guy grew up in my backyard. I've seen him surf since he was probably 13 or 14. And he was an incredible shortboard surfer. But when he connected with Richard Kenvin and got into sort of this whole other hydrodynamica world, he, he took it to heart full on started making crazy boards writing pieces of foam and then i i mean i knew he was a talent and i liked his shortboard surfing but when i saw him get on a longboard i said holy shit the guys this guy has some magic and there's very few tall lanky surfers in the history of surfing that that really have kind of put it together and he was like this sort of um, amalgamation of a lot of different surfers. You know, it was like I can see Mike Tabling in him. I can see Nat Young. I can see a little bit of Joel Tudor. I can see, you know, and, he, and yeah. he, this kid wasn't trying to do anything because he's not like that. Right. And, and that's probably the, what I really like about Ryan is that he's just real. You know, he's he's not down on the beach trying to be cool. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulder. He's just to use that played out word of a marketing dude. He's just a very authentic person. And he's really engaged and in, in interested in surfing. And you can feel that through the shapes he does and through the surfing. The most exciting film section I had seen in probably a decade was in Psychic Migrations. And it was of Ryan Birch and Ozzy and Nate Tyler. I was so blown away by it. I brought in my fiance. I'm like, you have to watch this. I mean, I was like, I literally had chills after watching it. It was it was just put together so well. It was a, com a perfect sort of combination. Already stoked on Ryan. The music was epic and the waves were insane. And there was something just magical about it. And I already knew that Ryan was an amazing surfer, but like everything special about him came across the screen in that one section. Yeah. And him with Ozzy right in there in Ozzy was writing a, different type of board than what i'd ever seen him ride it was a little bit longer railed and then nate tyler just you know doing his high performance thing it was just from beginning to end it was insane i ended up buying the film i have it you know i downloaded it and um i would say ryan is the one that that i'm always looking forward to seeing and you know you see him in joel tudor's duct tape events he's always in the final um 
And at the end of the day, like we have people that we are inspired by for their surfing, but you also like, you know, it's nice to know that they're a cool dude yeah. as well. And then it's full buy-in. You're like, okay, this, this person's rad. Mm-hmm. I, the interesting thing about that section too, is like those waves are treacherous. Like there's some gnarly sections on that wave and the way that he's surfing, it just looks so effortless and completely diminishes the um, seriousness of the wave. You know, like that was the success of what he did. Really interesting. And I agree. Phenomenal section. Um, I would say I also admire, um, I do watch the, some of the WSL. I'm I'm a little selective. Mm -hmm. It depends on the venue. Sometimes the waves are horrible and I know it and I don't watch, but if J US opens happening right now, (laughs) by the way, that's probably the best example. Yeah. I haven't watched one heat of the U S open. I honestly could care less. I did surf missed, with some of those guys at, at uh, Lowers last weekend. So You missed so many air reverses, dude. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah. The, you know, but I do enjoy um, – John John is always exciting. I mean, that's obvious. Everyone likes to watch John John. Um, yeah. And, and I, I'm a Slater fan. I, I don't – I have no problem admitting that. Um, the guy's inspirational. I, I'm 43. He's 45. I am in no way comparing anything I do to him in any way, shape, or form. But the fact that he's surfing at the level that he does at his age, is it's inspiring for all guys in my generation. And it has to be inspiring for young people. And um, it was really a bummer to see him break his foot. You know, I, I, I thought this was going to be an amazing year for him. And yeah. it was kind of sad to see that happen. But it's kind of cool how he's handling it. You know, he's taking to Instagram and like... He's taken to Instagram. Taking out the flat earther conspiracy He's theorists. going hard at the flat earthers. Um, it was kind of odd to see that he reposted a North Shore edit that I made. That's totally random. Did he really? When, yeah. When you People were texting me. like I got like 12 texts. Oh, my God. Kelly Slater reposted your post. And I'm in the middle of just working my ass off. I have no clue what's going on. And yeah. I go and look. I'm like, holy shit. That's kind of cool. Like, <laughs> Are you a huge fan of the North Shore? Oh, yeah, of course. I yeah. mean, I, shit, my brother and I, we saw it when it came out. I think it was the summer of 87. Uh, yeah, came out 30 right. years ago. That's right. My brother and I went and saw it at our local theater. We knew it was kind of a ridiculous film when we were watching it. We're like, oh, my God, this is so bad. But at the same time, it was so awesome because we hadn't been exposed to Pigeon that much. You know, I, I was probably in this, at the seventh or eighth grade, and the character Turtle was so rad, and, and the liners that came out of that one, we... We instantly loved the film, even though we knew it was pretty awful, you know, and and it, it just became an instant cult classic where all through high school, we all knew the lines to the film because, you know, we ended up for Christmas getting the VHS tape and we watched it a million times. And, you know, to this day, you run into anybody and you throw out a a, a one liner from that film and like they come back with their own. I, I would argue that the most unique and most bizarre quote of the film is... Go get it, Roger. You know that one? No. <laughs> if anyone's seen the film, it's super ridiculous because they're they're up at the house. The little girl's like, "Where's Daddy, Mommy?" And it's like, "Oh, they're surfing with uh, Rick, surfing with uh, Daddy." And it zooms down on them not surfing. They're just like talking about low tide. And okay. you're like, "Okay, nice, nice filmmaking, guys." <laughs> like, you probably should cut to them surfing. Yeah. And then some sometime right around that uh, that scene. Just out of nowhere, it cuts to the little girl um, and the dad throwing a ball like into the water, and it's like she's like, "Go get it, Roger!" And it's just like there's just so much random stuff 
and so like the super fans out there, if you you know if you talk to someone about the North Shore and go, what is the most random quote of North Shore? And I and I've asked that to people, and they came back with no prompting whatsoever and said, "Go get it, Roger." And wow. I was like, "Yes, wow, you get it. You know this film, true fan." <laughs> Um, so do you know Kelly personally? I don't know Kelly personally. I've met him a few times. I don't think that constitutes knowing him, but, um, he follows me on Instagram, which is totally random. And we've done some messages back and forth about flat earth, uh, because I asked him about it and I was fascinated by his fascination with it. Sure. And, uh, he, he kind of clued me in on some things and I did a little bit of research. I'm like, this is amazing. He encouraged me to go uh, look into it, and the comments on there are mind-blowing. For the record, Kelly does not think the Earth is flat. He's on he the opposing doesn't... side of the argument. <laughs> yes. And, uh... I don't want to mislead anybody. <laughs> yeah. He, he, recently did, he recently did something about um, demonstrating that if the Earth was flat, he showed what the upcoming lunar full lunar eclipse is going to look like, which occurs in about two and a half weeks. The 21st. And so... A lot there's sort of on a diagonal through United, United States, you're going to get a, a good portion of like 100 um, percent is going to be blocked out. In the South, not as much. It'll be like 90 percent. But he showed this like straight line go through the middle of the moon, and he's like, <laughs> he put that up as evidence. Okay, if the Earth is flat, then why don't the lunar eclipses look like this? It, it was like a, a mic drop kind of yeah. thing. It was pretty cool. But it's hilarious that he's even engaged in the conversation. It would be like somebody telling me, "Hey, man, the sky's red." Yes. I just go, oh, well, that person's dumb, so I'm moving on with my life. But he's, like, actively developing research and commentary and photoshopping he's, things to illustrate really, points. I mean, we know this. He's really intelligent on a lot of levels. And he'll go deep if he gets yeah. into a subject. If it's health, he can yeah. talk for days about health. Um, he's taken an interest in, you know, sustainable clothing. And I don't want to get into a discussion about outer known, but the fact that he's interested in it and taken on that challenge, which is really hard. I, I I'm sure he's learned by now. It's probably way harder than he might've even imagined. Totally. Um, I, I worked at Patagonia for six years and it took them decades to get where they're at, yeah. you know, and it was expensive and they made a lot of mistakes along the way. Yeah. Um, and you see a lot of other people that are sort of getting into environmental, um, stance on, on products and it's not easy, but I like that he gets passionate about things and, and get super involved. So it's, you know, it's fun to follow him and sort of see what he's into. Well, the reason why I asked if you know him personally is I want to get your uh, opinion on what does he do now? He's recovering from the broken foot. Does he retire? Does he come back next year? He's obviously not going to win a world title this year. And his goal, of course, with doing the tour is to win his 12th world title. So is this now Kelly's swan song and retirement or... This would just be opinion as a fan. Again, I don't. I, we don't know each other. We really. want I've your met, opinion. I've met a few times, but just someone who's watched his entire career. Um, in my early twenties, he did a bunny hop air over me at Seaside Reef because I got in his way. I thought that was pretty cool that it's he your, completely cleared me. I was so fame, embarrassed. Uh, and um, if anyone's going to come back from something, it's Kelly Slater. You know, Kobe Bryant tore his Achilles. Uh, tendon uh ripped it off and everyone's like he's done but he did come back you know kelly has access to a lot of information um you know financially he's doing just fine so 
he could go to any doctors that he wants to. And I know he's working with the best and he'll probably, you know, put all his energy into getting healthy. Uh, if probably the same guessing that any surf fan would do is that it's going to be really hard for him to be a world title contender next year, but I would never count that guy out. And I know that if he shows up at events like in Fiji and Tahiti and pipeline, he could still beat people with his broken foot right now. I mean, he's that good at tube riding, you know, that's probably obviously an exaggeration, but, um, an 80% Kelly Slater could win those events at those spots, you know, the high performance waves, trestles and, you know, Brazil and France and places where he's going to have to do a lot more turning. It'll be interesting to see how his foot heals up. Was it, it was his front foot. So, yeah, um, was it his back foot? His right foot. It was his right foot. It was back foot. Okay. Well, so well, that's interesting. Cause that, I mean, there's but a he lot won, of, he won Chopu with a broken foot before, mm-hmm. you know? So you're, you're right. I just think that um, we've all said that about Kelly forever. The the argument that you just made in that 80% Kelly can show up and be – that's been accurate for the last 20 years of Kelly's career. I think that a lot of us who love Kelly and have just been that closely tied to him for so long are still regurgitating those thing, those, those, those same thoughts without actually looking at the statistics, which state – He's actually not been doing well the last few years on tour. He hasn't been winning events. He won Chopu last year, but when was the last time he won Pipeline? When was the last time? Like, he can't beat Felipe at Snapper. He can't. Owen Wright at Cloudbreak last year, or the year, was the year before, actually, mind-blowing. Yeah. There's a lot of people at Pipe. John John, Gabriel Medina, like, endless, ne- that could go toe-to-toe with him when he's actually at 100% even. No, no pun intended. I think for a couple of years, I think people were hoping he would retire. You know, in in and honestly, I don't know if I would watch the WSL as much if he wasn't on there. When I know he's going to surf, I always watch his heats. I just mm-hmm. I love watching the surf. Yeah. And um, you know, the statistics would show he's not winning, but he's always right up there. You know, he's getting in quarters and semis, unless I'm forgetting something. I don't know that he is. I mean, I I don't have the stats in front of me, but I think we all just think that that's part of, he's just, you know, we want to believe it and he's been there for so long, but I don't know if you look at the stats that he's actually there. Yeah. Um, There goes the regular training in the background, but yeah, maybe you're right. You know, I, I know the last couple of years I just kept thinking to myself, Man, it'd be so cool to see you just walk away from this right. and go do surf projects and go find insane waves that no one's ever surfed. Or I want to see him get into big wave surfing. Like yeah. I think he could do some crazy shit in totally. big waves. And I mean, we saw he just dabbles in it. And you remember when he like pulled into YMA, and I know other people have in history, but it was so cool to see. It was like, okay, that's that's an indication of where mm-hmm. this guy's head's at. If he starts getting into big waves, it's going to be heavy. Yeah. You know, like I, I think he could do some things that some of these other guys wouldn't be willing to do. Yeah, I totally agree. So, um, I want to transition the conversation and talk about, do some hot quiver talk right now. You mentioned Ryan Birch being your favorite surfer to watch. Do you own any of his boards? I don't. I ordered a long board from him a year ago and, it was a moment in my life where the finances weren't lined up and it came down to paying for it. And there was just so much going on. I said, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I can't, I literally cannot buy this board right now. Can you sell it to someone else? And he's like, 
oh, cool. I was kind of hoping you'd say that. I really like this board. No way. So he ended up keeping it. And I'm like, so you're not bummed? He's like, no. I'm, I'm, he's like, I'm actually really stoked. So he ended up riding it. And okay. I, uh, I don't know if he ended up selling it. But um, I did hit him up a couple months ago. I rode one of his, a new model he made. And his long boards have been progressing. I mean, really, his best boards are the short boards, and I've admired his gliders. His long boards are, are, have never been something I've been super excited about. They're interesting, but they're kind of for me were a little hard to ride. And I've tried some of them from the kids who have them here. But I, I so I jumped on one a few months ago, and I and before I even got on it, I said, "Whoa, this this board looks good, Ryan. Like you've like you just took it to another level. Like I could just see it." And it had a real Australian influence to it. I'm really into the Australian style longboards. And I got on it. And I, I'm probably exaggerating, but I, f- I felt like I was hanging 10 for like 10 seconds. Hmm. And I'm not known to be really a nose rider. I'm like a hang fiver at best. And I came back out and I said, you nailed it. Like I said, sign me up. Because hmm. it it's on the computer. So he has... And I have no problem with computer shapes. In fact, I think they're a great idea. Um, yeah. So you can get consistency. So the fact that he could go and shape that same board. So I have a 10-footer on order. Oh, you do? Um, and, you know, I check in every once in a while. And uh, Little Bird told me that it's going to happen, but maybe not till sometime this fall. Okay. Um, you mentioned right before we turn the mics on that you have like 60 surfboards laying around I here do. in various places. I do. It's um, got a problem. I know. I don't even know what the most pointed question is to ask. What, who are your favorite shapers that you buy from, and what are your favorite boards that you've been riding? Like, um, my favorite board of just all time is a seven-two egg, and um, I have a model with Donald Takayama. It's a model that he made for me way before he passed away. It's kind of a silly name, but it's kind of just sort of stuck around. It, um, it started out as a longboard. It's called the Howard Special. It's kind of a play on the Trestle Special. And Donald came up with the name. I didn't. And um, really cool longboard. Um, it's it's a traditional longboard. It's a single fin. But I think it was in the late 90s, 97, Donald gave me his classic uh, three-fin egg the one with the little duck on it coming out of the, the eggshell. I never liked that that label. The logo was awful. Sorry, Donald, but it was. And um, But the board was insane. And at the time, I was a diehard wind and sea surfer. I lived and, and breathed everything about wind and sea. I was in the wind and sea surf club. I lived there at a you know, house on Nautilus. T- I mean, literally could throw a rock at it. I, I was on it for about, I don't know, 10 years or something. Wow. It was a pretty big deal. It, now I look back at it, it's almost like I can't believe it because it's such a bad wave. And um, But what I liked about Wind and Sea was the community, the lore, the history, the, the reef culture, and just feeling part of something. Um, and there were some really good days, you know, and when it was on, it was a pretty damn good wave. But the average day there, it's pretty hard. It's, we, you know, anyone that surfs there a lot, we just call it the burger. It is a burger. Sure. Um, the left's really good in the winter. Um, but so he handed me, he got me this egg and I had my first session on it and it changed my life, man. It Hmm. was like, holy shit. Why have I not been riding this board my whole life? It, it, it was the perfect board. It, it, 
it really like the way I wanted to surf was fully expressed through it. And, you know, I, I rode a lot of two plus one longboards that Donald made. I'd, I've been riding his board since I was 15 or 16. There was a few years where I rode David Craig's. I was sponsored through Mitch's surf shop. And then I went back to Donald's when I was 19 and been riding them ever since. Um, got on the team, the whole deal. The thing about the, the Trifon egg, and if there's any sort of surfing that any of my friends maybe knows me by, it's just the love of this board and this style of board, more way more than longboarding. And what it is, is it's a type of painterly, long-railed, carvy-type surfing. And I don't mean carve like rip on a shortboard. I mean carve more more in the way you would think of riding a snowboard, where there are these big, long arcs. And the 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 feeling of being on rail on these boards is like nothing else that I've felt personally. And if I could walk you through a ride real quick, I could probably sort of describe what it feels like. So they work well on a point break or like a big peak wave like a trestles or a wind and sea or a, a, a Rincon Malibu Jeffreys Bay. And when you, you drop in on these things, it's you do push in the hardest, deepest bottom turn that you could want to ever do. And it will slingshot you up the face. If you're really freaking good and on it, you could almost go vertical up the face, but that's kind of ridiculous. That's not really what the board's for. You might as well get a short board. But it kind of like what a hole does is it slingshots you right up in the pocket, and then you hit this high line, and you're gunning it as fast as you can go. And it's it's almost silly because it, it's so free and so fast and so effortless, and you're doing nothing. And from a distance, you're like, oh, look, that freaking hipster poser, you know, up there in the high line. But you should try it. See what it feels like. And then you're you're going as fast as you can. And then when the wave's ready to slow down or change directions, you drop your weight on the back again on the rail and go the other way and cut back. And push it as hard as you want. And you can bring the board all the way back around up into the whitewater. And really what it ends up being is what high-performance longboarders were kind of doing back in the day, except you don't have all that nose area that you don't need. And you type, you, you, you tap into a type of line that's sort of long forgotten. So if you look at 70s surfing, Michael Peterson and a number of guys, I'm not comparing anything I'm doing to that, but there's a, you look at the surfing they're doing, there's a type of line that's more or less sort of left behind. And, and it's not just about posing or looking cool. This type of surfing is a hundred percent about feeling and it's a hundred percent functional. The waves that we have here in Southern California are so mushy most of the time um, that you, you, know, you sort of, you're in this sort of crux of which surfboard do I ride today? And when you're looking at your choices, if it's shoulder high and under a longboard's fun, but it's kind of slow and clunky. So to really enjoy them, you got to find equipment that allows you to sort of run around on it and nose ride and, and, and sort of jam around in the pocket. And the Australian longboard model that we could talk about later does that. The egg doesn't really fit into that realm because it needs a bit of space to work. Where the egg really comes to life, in my opinion, is once you sort of hit the shoulder head high range up to double overhead. And then you've got this giant canvas because, like I was saying earlier, you're engaging the rail the whole time. 
And if you're trying to engage the rail in a waist-to-shoulder-high wave, just, it just doesn't fit. You're fighting it. You're better off if you don't like longboarding. You're better off with either a traditional shortboard, if it's good enough, or I would argue a fish or a mini Simmons. Um, I think that those are really exciting. If, if you like to move around and feel some sort of energy and electricity in small waves, I would go that route. Um, but on any given day, if, if I could pick one board, and I, I wrote about this in the Surfer's Journal, I made an argument that the egg is the perfect one board quiver. Now, I could ride that egg and shoulder high and under. I could totally make it work. Anybody could. Yeah. But it's definitely not the perfect board. But if I was going somewhere like J-Bay or somewhere that had Rincon-esque waves, down in, let's say in Mexico, if I just showed up with that one board, I know I'd be dialed. Because no matter how heavy or big it got, I could handle it. You know, I rode these boards in Selena Cruz and some pretty heavy waves, and there was some serious, you know, tunnel time, and the board handled. And I think the proof's in the pudding. Like, I'm not trying to profit off this. I'm not trying to sell people on it. It's just something that I believe in. But when... I get folks paddle up all the time and ask me, that board looks really fun. <laughs> yes, it, it is fun. That's, kind of, that's, that's why I'm riding it. Um, and then they're like, wow, I never tried a fun board. And then I kind of, a little bit of smoke comes in my ears because, well, it's not a fun board. It's an egg. Um, Aren't those terms used interchangeably, though, for most people? Yeah, they yeah. are. And um, this would be repetitive for anyone that, that read the article I wrote. But... Um, the term fun board came from the 80s. It was um, shapers, production shapers like Phil Becker, who um, you know is, a, is an incredibly well-known and successful shaper. Um, they came out with a board that was more or less dubbed the fun board, and it was kind of a hybrid between a short board and a long board. Now, a fun board is, is a bit different. It has a lot of rocker in it, and the tail is more or less a squash tail. Typically, it's a squash tail with three fins on it. Um, the first egg I got from Donald had three fins on it. Um, and Joel Tudor has <laughs> given me shit my entire life for not riding them as single fins. I've tried them as single fins. And in fact, there's a wave or two in one California day in the extra section somewhere where I'm on a single fin and I can just see it in the footage. I'm not surfing well on it. And it just, the single fin on those boards does not work for my, my type of surfing. The perfect egg to me has side bites on it. And yes, it is a fun board to ride, yeah. but it's not the same thing. It has lower rocker. The rails are foiled. It's a tucked under edge. The fun board as we know it is really just kind of like a exaggerated short board. Um, and it's really designed to allow a beginner surfer to catch a wave and not pearl. That's why there's all that rocker in it. But the rocker really slows you down. I want to go as fast as possible. That's what I'm into. And so the ones that I ride kind of take some elements of the hull that are cool. Like the hulls are rad, but when you get the hull out of Malibu and Rincon and you want to actually change directions, they're awful. I mean, it is like wrestling an alligator. There's very few people that you could even show me evidence that they actually made a nice turn on one. I've seen Dan Malloy do an insane turn, but Dan's one of the best surfers in the world. Yeah. Um, I've seen other people that are revered for riding them. But they're struggling when they're when they're cutting back on them, and um, so I, long story short, the favorite board is going to be at this point in my life is a seven two, and I'll show you after we're done here, seven two egg, and I've morphed the fin setup into a two plus one, and again I get I get, I get so much shit from Joel Tudor all the time, like he just his the 
basically ripped on me for years saying like, you don't need those training wheels. You know, those are expletive, you know, like he has a lot of strong feelings about it. And I'll argue is show me someone that's done an amazing turn on the single fin egg. I I haven't seen it. And when you look at it, it's weak and there's not a lot of spray coming off it. Now, I don't surf to throw spray, but I think it's an indication that you're committed and that you're pushing as hard as you can and that the board is responding. And I, w- I want a board that's going to perform. Yeah. Now, if I want to do an amazing turn, I'm going to get a short board. But there's a certain type of turn that an egg does that, again, if I could use telemark skiing or I could use snowboarding as an example, there's a whole movement right now in split boarding and carve snowboarding that's insane you know you've seen the the arcs those guys do on it and that's the feeling i'm after i don't know what it looks like i just know what it feels like and um the people that have asked me about these boards and gotten them i i get messages all the time about how it's changed their life you know which sounds ridiculous but it's something that i've been told is missing in people's lives and and because the boards have had a stigma they have and they don't look cool with, with side bites they just don't it looks lame but I don't care. They work. Yeah. I've never heard anybody speak so passionately about that board design, about the egg. As you're explaining it, I'm sold. And I don't have that board in my quiver. I don't have anything like that in my quiver. So, um, you know, interesting. I, I get a lot of folks up in Ocean Beach that ride them, which is pretty trippy because Ocean Beach is kind of heavy. Yeah. But they use it as their, their tweener model. Okay. You know, because Ocean Beach will be really either really small or freaking big. There yeah. isn't a lot of in-between stuff, but they... They're like, yeah, it's perfect on the head high to double overhead days. I'm like, okay, I, I agree. Like yeah. that's when I break mine out, and I go to lowers a lot, and but I don't ever go to lowers if it's under head high, right? Because it's just too hard. You know, you're in there shoulder to shoulder with all the pros and the kids, but um, on the bigger days, I can sit with the older guys and the pros that are good paddlers, like Kalohe and Dino, and those guys will they'll sit outside on the big days. Those guys can paddle. Like, it's insane how well those guys can paddle. It blows my mind. Um, But having that little bit extra volume um, allows me to kind of be in the mix. Now, you know, there's been, I've been criticized out there. When I first started showing up with them out there, I was told to, (laughs) I was told to leave. Um, I've been told to leave with that board at Jeffrey's Bay um, and a few other spots. Get that longboard out of here, kook, whatever. Um, But I didn't leave. And um, later on, and this has happened time and time again where you get the looks like, get that longboard out of here. Well, actually, it's 7-2. Right. Um, it's not technically a longboard. Then later on, I get people asking if they could, the same critics, asking if they could look at it. Because once they see, wow, you just went Mach 20 on a bottom turn and turned it as hard as you possibly could and it held in. And you basically outrun and went faster than most people surfing out here because of the surface area on it, it's a pretty, you know, there's a lot of volume on it. And that's, as you know, that's where you're getting the speed from on a narrower tail. You, you know, to be at a high level, you have to have yourself way more in the pocket. These boards allow you to run out into the flatter spots of the wave and change directions without losing speed with the side fins. If I, once I go out onto the flat part of the wave, if I'm on a single fin and I cut back, I, I, I literally feel it decelerating because I, Single fins weren't really designed to do that. I mean, that wasn't the type right. of surfing they were doing. And you watch all single fins, and they kind of, at, at the apex of the turn, they're bogging, yeah. and they're kind of slowing down. I'm sure we could look at examples where that didn't happen, but by and large, that's what happens. With the side bite, or 
even a bonzer some bonzer eggs are sick that's some, that's like the next frontier that i want to get into um and that's like my dream shape is to get a bonzer cutting back on that two plus one you feel it accelerate because the board is bending a little bit you know you get it glassed a certain way with the right stringer and it accelerates and comes comes right back in the pocket you bounce off the white water and then you're back in the pocket and it allows you to surf a little bit more upright than a short board so if you're a little more comfortable with an upright stance like maybe you have a longboard sort of background it translates a little bit better than a short board because of that upright stance and the reason you can have that upright stance is because you don't have a ton of rocker when you have a lot of rocker you have to spread out your stance get lower and you have to pump and you need to generate speed the trim speed doesn't happen effortlessly you have to have a, an understanding of where to be in the wave mm-hmm. proper shortboarding is really hard yeah totally you know it's i'm currently working at a climbing company it's called black diamond um they're the biggest brand in climbing they're the leading brand and i work with a lot of climbers and i work with climbers that are some of they would be regarded as you know as talented as the best climbers in the world and they've all unanimously said that surfing is the hardest thing they've ever done in their life these are people that could hang by a pinky a thousand feet off the ground without a rope on them and they're telling me that surfing is the hardest thing they've ever done and i'm like wow i you know i never really thought about that i mean i knew it was hard but climbing seems like the scariest most hairball thing to do on the planet totally and it kind of puts it into perspective. Yeah, it does. And they explained it. They're like, yeah, you're paddling out. And you're getting your ass handed to you. You have no freaking clue what's going on with the waves. You're out of breath. And then you're like, well, I don't even know how to catch a wave. And if I do catch a wave, what do I do? Yeah. That's <laughs> so fascinating. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool. And I, I tell everyone the same thing. Look, you just got to – you have to dedicate a summer to it. If you're going to teach sure. anyone how to surf, you have to go every day. We, we have a, a roommate here who's learning how to surf. And it's like – frustrating yeah. you know but when you go once a week you don't really get anywhere if you go every day and go for the whole summer by the end of that period you'll be able to get up and then from there you can build some momentum if you you have a 60 board quiver um if you could order any board from any shaper in the world what would it be um wow there's that's that's a difficult one um I would say the top of that list, it would be a bonzer. It's the one thing that is sort of missing um, out of everything I have. And it's something that friends have told me for a while. You would love a bonzer. It fits the type of surfing you do. I tried Trevor Gordon's bonzer egg. Um, that It wasn't shaped by the Campbell brothers. Um, it was uh, Ryan Lovelace. And I... It blew my mind. I was like, okay, really? I really like this fin setup. And Joel Tudor's told me for years, you need to get a bonzer, you know. And and I want to, so I want to get a three fin bonzer, maybe the rush short model, or maybe something a little more custom. Um, I've seen some that Alex Nost is riding that I find pretty fascinating. They're they're kind of like seven two pintail guns. Okay. And he's riding, you know, like waves of consequence, like double, triple overhead waves. I think getting a bonzer for that sort of like double overhead range um, would be awesome. Um, if I could be a little greedy, maybe get two, get like a <laughs> rush, get, get the rush short model for sort of like performance waves yeah, and then get something a bit gunnier. Um, 
you know, the, the board I wanted forever was a Skip Fry, and I, I was lucky enough to finally hook up with him. I, I grew up surfing in San Diego, and Skip was our hero, um, everyone, everyone's hero, really. And I always rode Takayamas, and I, I just always admired the boards, and mostly because of him and because of the wings. You know, his, his shapes are unique, and they're, they're pretty hard to master. Um, they're not what I would call user-friendly boards. You're talking about Skip right I'm now. I'm talking about, yeah, Skip, um, Skip Fry Shapes. Yeah, got it. And a couple of years ago, I finally said, F it, I'm going to order a Skip Fry because I knew they were about $2,500. And, you know, I, I've never really made very much money in my life, and that just was hard to justify that, that price. But, you know, Dale Velzi had just passed away. And I wanted a Del Velzi and I didn't order one. And um, I know that Skip's time is going to be limited like anybody. And, you know, he was maybe 70 at the time I ordered the board. And it was the best decision of my life, really. I mean, it it blew my mind. You know, I, I'll talk all day about eggs, and eggs are my favorite board. But the glider board was an unexpected experience. Um Tom, Thomas Campbell had one in the late 90s, um, and he was telling me how rad it is. And, and regrettably, I kind of scoffed at it a little bit. I was like, mm, and I, I think I rode a wave on it. I'm like, this sucks. This is too hard to ride. I just wasn't open to it, and I didn't understand it. I admired Skip surfing on it, and I thought it was perfect for him. But I wanted to nose ride. And I was like, well, you can't nose ride these things. Why, why would I ride one? Yeah. <laughs> and I, and it, it was just such a bad call. I should have gotten into him sooner. Um, so I only got into him four or five years ago. And what I like about him, and, and honestly, I don't really don't think people should ride gliders. I, I think they're hard to ride. They're unwieldy. Um, they're not user friendly and they, they're going to become a nuisance. If everyone starts riding them, they can be worse than a sup. And I'm sure there are people, if anyone listens to this, who see me ride it, probably hate me when I ride them. Um, because even without trying, you get a lot. You get a lot of waves. Um, some of the best surfs I've had on them have been at San Onofre, in about shoulder to head high waves. And it's the closest thing to tapping into ancient Hawaiian trim. Which, unless you have an Olo or have a way to go get one or have Tom Wigner make you one, you've probably never ridden a board like that. So this is the closest thing. And it's like the egg feeling that I described earlier like times 20 hmm. it's insane and it is so like scary and difficult to ride them at a high level anyone could paddle one in and go straight and scare everybody because it looks like you're going to run them over but to surf them really well um it is a challenge and it's something that i put a lot of time into as a personal challenge just is like i want to figure this out yeah you know and the ones that thomas got were more foiled the one i ended up with is 11-2 you know, I mentioned to Skip, like, kind of hinted to him, like, hey, like, how thick are we going to make this? And he's like, oh, don't worry. I got the dimensions. And, and I, I didn't have the balls that, like, because I had been given some advice, like, hey, you know, he makes those a little thick. You should ask him to make it thinner because, you know, I'm, I'm 190 pounds. So he's going to assume maybe that I need a little more beef in it. And if you pick up the board, I mean, it's three and a half inches thick and it, you can feel it. And, um, so initially it was really hard to ride, but <clears throat> I put in the time on it. And it, when you can do a couple things on it, like if you can do a cutback on it, 
I've, I can do roundhouse cut back on it, which is pretty stupid. You really don't need to do that, and you probably shouldn't. But I, I've worked on it, and you'd run it. You'd go up high line, kind of like the egg, and run it out a little bit, and then just put everything into it and just wham and change directions and go right at the white water just go straight at it and then bap, you hit it and it rebounds you and you just kind of let your body kind of go with it and it puts you right back in the wave and when you pull one of those off it's like hitting a home run you know the mm. feeling of the bat you're like i know you're like i just hit a home run i know like the feeling is awesome yeah it's kind of like that and you're always on the edge of disaster like you're always just about ready to eat shit when you're kind of doing stuff like that and when you pull it off, it's like, okay, all right. You yeah. know, I had a challenge and I, I kind of met it. And that's, I think that's kind of cool with anything in life, you know, whether it's like, hey, I want to learn how to rock climb or I want to try um, some other difficult activity like martial arts or, or what have you. And I think humans are inherently, we're problem solvers and we like challenges. And when you put a challenge in front of you and, and you meet it, it's pretty rewarding. I, I can't explain that. I'm not a psychologist or sociologist. I don't know what it is that's in us, why we do that. Yeah. Um, but surfing has been my problem to solve in a way. And putting time into the boards and figuring them out. And and honestly, I wish I got more into it in my 20s. I, I didn't really put a lot of thought into my equipment Right. in my 20s. I just kind of like, oh, Donald made me this. Or, oh, you know. Hey, Thomas Campbell, can I ride your board? Like the board that I rode in the seedling was his. It was like a custom board. And he even told me, he's like, you know, you should get into your equipment more, like really figure it out. But I always had jobs. I was always busy. I was like, oh, I don't have time or I don't want to bother Donald. So I would just kind of get whatever. Sure. But Donald passed away a few years ago. And um, I was, you know, longtime team rider, really loyal. I didn't ride any other boards when I was with Donald and when he passed away, I'm, I'm still on the team, but I just was like, you know, I'm getting older and, and I was in my late thirties and I just started reaching out to other folks. I reached out to Tyler Hatzikian, who's a longtime friend. His longboards were another kind of aha moment for me. They were so different than what I was used to riding. And I told him that I really like the Australian style boards because he's like, well, what are we going to make? And I'm like, well, I want to get like a Magic Sam. You know, I want to ride what Nat Young was riding. I was really into that. That was the goal of the Howard Special with Donald. And we didn't quite get there. Um, you know, Donald's, once you get to his age, he's a master. There's not much you can really tell a master. You can't really tell them what to do. Um, but working with younger guys that weren't set in their ways we were able to come up with a board called the um, Double Step Deck. Actually, he had made it for the Marshall Brothers and maybe somebody else before. He might have done it with Matt Howard and Brittany. Um, so I'm not taking credit for anything by any means, but we revisited a design he'd done before. And I wrote it, and, and I was like, oh, again, holy shit. Like, it's so cool when you've been going along for a while doing the same thing and then you find out there's another level or another yeah. gear that you didn't know existed. And that's what's so cool about surfing. And I think that's why all of us geek out on surfboards. It's why we spend all of our money on it and probably have no retirement, you know, because <laughs> we're still looking to improve. We're still looking to tap into a feeling that we haven't experienced. And I can right. tell you that it never stops. And so the journey that I've been on since that Tyler board is we did a couple other boards, one that's called the throttle model. It's a red board with a white kind of stripe down the middle. I've ridden that thing into the ground and I end up 
being one of the few people I think that delaminates his boards because I ride them so much. And he does the best class jobs in the world. His boards don't delaminate, but I've been finding ways to delaminate sure. them. And um, a spinoff from that is got I got a board or two from a friend in Australia named uh, Thomas Bexon. And Thomas is one of the best longboard shapers in the world. Um, I, I know we know Tyler Hadzikian is one of the best in the world, but Thomas Bexon should be in that conversation. His team riders are insane. You know, he has some of the best longboarders in the world, and he stayed with us for a few weeks um, this last summer, and he left beho- he left behind a board um, that is incredible, and I, I, it's doing everything I've ever wanted to hmm. on a board. And I found that Donald's rockers are awesome, but they're a little bit more gradual. There's no extreme flip anywhere. And for nose riding, when you have a kind of a flatter, kind of graduated rocker, you can nose ride them, but you can't nose ride them to the level that some of these guys are without that little bit of flip and then going a little bit wider in the tail. There's a, there's a formula there. And guys like... CJ Nelson have tapped into it. I mean, the guy's just surfing better than he ever has. I've known CJ for 20-some years. And at age 40, I, I don't know how old he is. You know, he just won that Mexi Log Fest. And I've seen his whole journey where he was really into the Nueva-style longboards with the full, wide noses. And all of his boards have shifted to this sort of um, width in the back and I saw him in Australia two years ago, surf better than he's ever surfed. And if you want to see that session, find a film called, um, I think it's called Church of the Open Sky. Oh, yeah. Nathan Oldfield. Called? Yeah, Nathan Oldfield. Yeah. And the session is in there. And I was, I walked up to the beach. I got a phone call to join. And I was with my fiance. And we walked up and, and uh, I was like, I can't paddle out. He's surfing out there by himself, and he's ripping. Like I, I, I'm like, I gotta watch this. Like I've never seen this. We, we delayed our paddle out for about an hour, and I'm like, okay, we we get to go out now. We've given him some time, and uh, but it really, and you can talk to CJ about it. And I know he has a company now, and his boards are selling really well. There's a formula there in longboard surfing. There's a lot to be learned for any of the longboard nerds out there. The Australians had it dialed from the Noosa um, sort of '66 zone with all those guys from the hot generation and there's a lot of designs that came and went and only existed for maybe two months because they got to this zenith of longboarding that was so dialed and so awesome but totally forgotten because it wasn't around long enough to really get out there and get around the world and to me that's like the holy grail of longboards right now is the if the foundation of your design is coming from those and You've got a winning formula. Joel Tudor's got one of the best longboards he's ever had in his life, and it's really based around that formula, where it's this width, there's a little flip, it's foiled, um, and it has a reiki fin. And um, so if you really like to longboard, that's the jam. I I don't believe that the Nueva wide nose up front is the way to go if you want to kind of do everything. You're talking about the flip and the rocker. Is that in the tail or the nose? It's in the tail. Got it. So it's it's just that there's you can do too much. You've seen the tails where they really flip up, and those kind of suck because when you go to do a turn, you feel like you're doing a wheelie. So there's a balance between the really kind of low rocker of, say, like a Takayama or like a Christensen. Their rockers are more in line with like a Skip Fry. They're really good trimming boards. Um, they turn beautifully. 
um, but they just don't nose ride at the at the next level. You can right. nose ride them, but if yeah. you want to go to sort of you want to be in the duct tape and you want to be a pro, uh, you need to get the boards with those, that sort of flip. Yeah. Um, You're probably getting I, more info than you bargained for. Right no, now. no, no. It's great. <laughs> like I said, custom or listeners always say they want more. Do you ever shape? Have you ever shaped a board? I hate to admit this. Um, I started shaping a board. I got about halfway through it, and I never finished it. No so way. I guess I'm a quitter. <laughs> Why didn't you finish it? I, I went on a travel somewhere. I forgot about it. And my buddy's like, hey, are you going to finish this board? Because if not, I'm going to finish shaping it. And I was like, go ahead. Just take it. It, it, was, it was an egg. Um, it's something I, I would like to do. I need, an, I need a challenge. Again, it comes back to perhaps laziness and also what am I doing with my free time, yeah. which I don't have tons of. Um, like most people that have jobs, you're busy. Um, but I have access to really, really good shapers, you know, yeah. and so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling quite fortunate, you know, and I have a range of boards from I have access to the Patagonia boards, which I really like a lot. Um, Fletcher Chenard's boards are unique someone that likes kind of a performance aspect um, but wants a really lightweight board that's really strong. Um, there's a model I've developed with FCD called the Huevo Ranchero, and that's like a high-performance version of the eggs I ride. It's just got like another gear on it, and if the waves are a bit heavier, I'll grab that one. Okay. Um, are there any projects that you're working on that you want to discuss? Um, I am... I believe I'm project lists. Um, you know, the the only projects I have are just sort of non-surf related. You know, I, I'm a marketing consultant, so I got to work for companies. And I help them either turn their brand around, give it structure, or work on campaigns. Yeah. And that's more or less the project. I, I did, um, I, I was participating in a film called Free Jazz Vein. I have a few waves in it. Um, yeah. Tino Hayda made the film. There's some really good surfing in it. It's just a surf porn film, but if you want surf porn, it's good. There's some yeah. really good surfing in there. Um, I'd like to write more for the Surfer's Journal. Um, I've been doing a, maybe an article or two a year, so I'd like to do more. I just, again, you know, it's like, what could I possibly write about that hasn't been told? You know, it's like, are there any untold stories out there? I'm not quite sure if there are. Okay. You know, I mean, there are there are some racy stories out there. Um, I have a friend of mine, and I don't know how interesting this would be, but we've talked about it, and he's a psychologist. And he's interested to do a piece on the psychology of, of surfing and kind of what goes into it on a, on a sort of science level. I, I, f I feel that that could be interesting. Maybe there's some some deeper science there that could kind of explain all the different quirks and all the different rad and, and lame things about surfing. That could be interesting. And, and to take it another step further, he'd like to be the psychologist for the WSL and work with athletes how to get to the next level. Because you'll, you know, you read stuff by Brad Gerlach or other coaches out there, and they'll talk about, well, what's holding this athlete back? And it's usually it's mental. And I think there's a lot there. And there's there's people that come from different backgrounds. They either come from a perfectly normal family and they're super rich and they were fed, handed everything as a kid, or 
they grew up in a favela and didn't have anything and had to fight for everything. And yeah. we all, they all bring their own issues to the table, but there's some, some interest there of, well, what are the breakthroughs for some of these people to get to the next level? Because we've seen some surfers that are the best in the world at free surfing, but they just suck at competition. Right. Totally. And I mean, that's, Maybe that's kind of boring stuff, but that that could be kind of interesting. There's a million different directions you can go with that, the sports psychology side of it. There's yeah. lots to be written about, I would think. Yeah, so, um, you know, project-wise, if I could do a project, I don't have one, but I, I would like to do a short film on the egg, basically describing what you and I just talked about a little while ago and, yeah. and sharing that with people because I, I think it is – a genre of surfing that could be pretty meaningful to a lot of people that maybe just haven't been exposed to it. I think so. And, and there's a stigma there, you know, it, if you grew up making fun of the fun board, like you associate that board with kooks. So are you comfortable with that board that kind of resembles that under your arm? And I, I argue once you get in the water, you will be, you can redefine it, man. Yeah. That's where the greatest strides can be made is something that nobody's really thought of redefining, you know, and redesigning and, um, what's your current relationship like with surfing? How often? All that sort of stuff. Um, the last couple of years, I was surfing quite a bit. I maybe, if anything, had a resurgence. I worked for a brand called Spy for years, and before that at Patagonia, and they were pretty committed, full-time roles, um, director, you know, VP, full corpo jobs, which I think a lot of my friends and people who barely know me were always surprised by, like thought that I surfed all the time. Um, then I went into consulting in my own business. I did have more flexibility. So the last few years I was probably in the water every day because I could move, I could work in the evening. Freelance is awesome for that. Um, and then I took on a role about five months ago as an interim VP of marketing for a brand called Black Diamond. So that's changed my life dramatically. I, I don't know how long I'll be doing this gig. Um, it could be for another year or two. It could be for a few months. It just really is going to depend on where the business goes and, and what the needs are. Um, so for the last five five months, I've been surfing on the weekends. That's been interesting because they're located in da, 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 Salt Lake City, which is pretty far from Cardiff by the Sea. It is. It, it's only a 90-minute flight, but um, yeah. Monday through Friday, surfing is kind of out, of out of the question. So um, that would explain why I'm quite pasty right now. Uh, late summer, I have zero tan, except a little bit on my face. And uh, that's taken you know, some getting used to. But you know, in your 20s and 30s, you believe that you have to surf every day. Otherwise, you're going to lose your edge and you're going to kind of go backwards in your abilities. Um, the last five months, I'm not surfing at the level that I was then, but I don't know that anyone could notice that. That's only something you notice in yourself. Yeah. Um, but after two or three sessions, you're like, you're right back into it because I think surfing at a point, if you've done it long enough and frequently enough, it's like martial arts or dancing where there's just this combination of muscle memory and muscle awareness that even if you're a little bit out of shape, you know how to communicate with your body to make it happen. And the knowledge is so deep that, you know, I knew the first couple waves today when I went out, today's a Saturday. I got home late last night, Friday. It was a little rusty. The waves weren't that great, but toward the end I was like, okay, it's starting to come back. You know, um, I think if you can get in the water two days a week, you can surf, um, at a pretty good level until your body starts falling apart when you're older. Yeah. You just got to take care of yourself in between those sessions. 
final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? The last board I rode was today, and it was it's a ten six Skip Fry Eagle uh, that was gifted to me by my fiance, and it's a it's a beautiful board. It's a kind of a tweener glider, so ten six is a kind of an unusual size, and I I had it made for if I would like to ride it on a bigger day when no one's around because everyone will get <laughs> everyone will get pissed if I ride that on a big day. Um, but I think it's going to go insane on a sort of head high to double overhead day. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so I was out there obviously and I saw you riding that. I was shocked that it was ten six. I don't know, like the nose width or something about it when you were paddling just didn't look like that big of a board. And even when you were riding it, I think there was a maneuverability to it that made me surprised that it was that long. Yeah. It's pretty snappy board. You know, when we were out there today, the waves were pretty awful, but, um, it, I, I know when I, I only got it a few months ago oh, okay. and, and, uh, I think I did the craziest, most exciting left go right I've ever done, you know, where you paddle, I'm regular foot. So I'm paddling left to get into a wave that's already breaking and you, you're paddling and you, you basically are aiming at the whitewater cause you paddled into it kind of from the shoulder to chase it down. And then right before the whitewater, put everything you have and just whip the board 180 and go you know, right. And it just whipped around and, and kind of like carved and bounced off the white water. And I was like, Oh man. And I, you know, I'm, I know throughout, <laughs> I know through, yeah. And I know throughout our discussion, you're like, well, this seems to be a theme. This seems to be a holy shit moments, but um, it really is true. And like, we're all looking for those holy shit moments yeah. in surfing. And that's what gets us up every morning. And that's why we don't get bored of it. And that's why we're all going to surf until we, our body won't let us do it anymore. How many skip fries do you own now? I have two gliders. I have one seven two egg that I got for my fortieth birthday, and I have a five ten fish. So I have four, and my lady friend uh, she has one. She has a ten two glider that reportedly is one of the best ones that anyone has seen in years. It really? is. Yeah, when Skip shaped it, he thought he hadn't met her in in person. He thought that she was like a tiny little 110-pound gal. And she's a tall, uh, curvy, athletic gal. And so fortunately, he made it really foiled. And it is slick. Hmm. And it is beautiful. And it's a really, really deep, dark purple. It's just freaking badass. Fortunate mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I was like, man, it'd be kind of cool if Skip thought I was 110 pounds. I wonder what (laughs) I'd get. I I really like foiled surfboards. I like them real thin. Cool. All right, man. Well, hey, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for uh, hanging out in Cardiff and chatting. Blue sky smiling at me. Nothing but blue sky do I see. Blue birds singing song. Nothing but blue sky from now on. Never saw the sun shining so bright Never saw things going so right Noticing the days hurrying by When you're in love, my how they fly by Blue days, all of them gone Nothing but blue skies from now on
Thank you again, Devin, for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Truly appreciate it. Thrilled to have your voice as a part of this show, the Surf Splendor Network. You can find everything that Devin and I discussed in this episode on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Of course, there's a comment section there. I encourage you to chime in, join the conversation. And you can also do it on social media, at Surf Splendor. I'll post a couple of videos of Devin shredding on those eggs and um, a bunch of other stuff. So definitely follow, tag friends in that. That's a great way to share the show. And of course, as you've heard me say before... That is how this show grows, is by you telling friends, tagging them, rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps with our ranking. That helps for other people to find it. The more influence we can have and kind of spread, the more we can attract guys like Devin to be on the program. So that's really all that matters. Do your part, and then I'll keep cranking out the content. All right? Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Also want to say a quick thanks to those who have made financial contributions via our donation platform. This show solely exists off donations, so every dollar helps, and we always appreciate that. Thank you once again, and I believe that's all. I'll make you endure my voice for this week. So until next week, I hope that you enjoy the Hurley Lowers Pro, hope that you get back into the ocean, share a couple of waves, and shred on. Sky at me. Nothing but blue sky. Do I see? Blue days, all of them gone. Now, oh.